take a moment to consider all the factors that impact your health. What comes to mind? Your diet, perhaps your lifestyle, like whether you exercise, drink, or smoke. Maybe you thought about your family history of diseases like cancer or diabetes. But health and well-being go beyond that. The field of public health is about thinking broader, thinking beyond the individual, about how our built environment affects us, how laws and policies impact us, and how the social forces influence our behavior and well-being. Each week, this podcast will discuss one topic from the wonderful world of public health to reveal these ubiquitous hidden forces and artifacts. One episode at a time, we will show how public health is all around us. Welcome to Everything is Public Health. Everything is Public Health. Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm Cass. And I'm MJ. All right, MJ, I have a question for you. Go ahead. Have you ever painted a room or like even the outside of a house? With these soft, white hands, I have never done a day of manual labor in my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, have you have you like painted for fun? Like gone to one of the sip and paint things? Yes, right. I, okay. I love painting. So it can take a long time for paint to dry, right? Yes, awfully long. Right. So, and if you're painting a room, like depending on what you're doing in the room, in the house, the paint doesn't always last for very long. Yeah, so, and it smells awful. While you're- yeah, and if you're painting the outside of your house, depending on where you live, like if you paint your house, your paint might not last very long, which is where lead paint comes into play. So if you add lead to paint, it makes it dry faster and it can help it last longer. And folks have known this for a really long time, actually, as far back as the fourth century BC, people were adding lead to paint to either give better pigmentation or make it last longer, all those sorts of things. Yeah, I know about the color, like it makes things whiter, but I never knew about fast drying and stuff. So that's, I mean, it makes sense that there's a reason why they use it. Yeah, and it, and it makes it last longer, right? So if you're doing a lot of production, like a lot of building, there's incentive for things to dry quickly so you can move on and do other stuff. Though there are some of these potential benefits to adding lead to paint. Actually, people have known for a really long time that there are health issues associated with lead exposure. And even if you look back, like medieval texts, it will warn of the dangers of lead-based paint. Like, oh, you'll have um, seizures or like other terrible things that can happen to you if you get too much lead exposure. But So they knew about these things. for a long, Yeah, for a <laughs> long time, people have known. And then we were like, Oh, that's fine. We'll we'll just continue this practice that we have known. Efficiency over over health effects, right? Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. But before we go any further, MJ, do you know what lead is? I mean, it's an element on the periodic table. It's Yes, it is. I've never heard anything positive about lead. Every time lead is mentioned, it's either someone is dying or someone is getting poisoned. Yeah, I've no positive association with that element whatsoever, but I do know that it is not just in paint, but also in gas, or yeah. it used to be in gas. Right. So lead is a naturally occurring metal that is all throughout our planet. So even though we associate it with different products, it's not something man-made. It's something that's been around for a long time. And adding lead to paint gained a lot of popularity through the late 1800s and into the 20th century, in part because of that durability that I was talking about. And some of the peak use of lead paint was in the 1920s, but really if your home was built like before the late 1970s, there's a really high chance that you have at least some trace of lead-based paints. So 70s, that's that's not that long ago. Right. That's what? 50 years ago. 
How old is your house? It was, oh, my house was built in 1964. How old is my house? I mean, Baltimore is an old city and we live in a row home. So I'm pretty sure this house was built before the 70s. I would guess that your row home was built before the 70s. Yeah. Especially where you are in the city. It's a very high likelihood it was built before. So even though we knew that there were health issues associated with lead exposure, lead paint was repeatedly endorsed by local state and federal governments, even though we have this this risk of sort of medical issues. And it's not like some other consumer products where there were like secret studies done and nobody was showing the results or anything. Like think about tobacco. There were all these secret studies about the harmful effects. Like there was tons and tons of public data about the harms of lead exposure, lead-based paint in particular. And actually going back to Baltimore, Baltimore was the first jurisdiction in the United States to ban the use of lead-based interior paint in 1951. Oh, so we're we're ahead of the curve on that one. That's good. A little bit ahead of the curve. Yeah. Um, although I, your row home may have been still built before 1951. So honestly, yes, uh, that's probably there's, the truth. There's a, a risk there. But through the 1950s and 1960s, The use of lead-based paint did decline because of some voluntary standards essentially prohibiting their use, which I think is a really interesting mechanism, sort of these these voluntary standards. People say, okay, this isn't against the law, it's not against regulation, but we recognize that this may be risky, and so we're going to voluntarily do that, which is an interesting way that public health can come into play, which is, okay, public health doesn't always have the power to regulate something, but it can say, hey, here's a known health effect. Like here are some things that we can do to minimize the harms and you can voluntarily engage in those standards. Do people take those seriously? In the case of lead paint, they did actually. By the end of the 1960s, lead paint was very rarely used, at least in the interior, but it actually wasn't until 1971 that the federal government caught up to the voluntary standards and said in the Lead Poisoning Prevention Act that we needed to worry about lead exposure. And then in 1978, they finally banned the use of lead paints. Okay, so the timeline is we have known about the dangers of lead for multiple centuries. Absolutely. And only in 1950s were voluntary standards set up. Yes, and it took another 20 years for the federal government to say anything. Okay, that's on par for the course. Well, as a reminder, some jurisdictions did ban the use of lead paints like Baltimore. And so there were some local level and potentially even state bans. But it took the federal government 20 years after Baltimore banned the use of lead paint to say, hey, we should prevent lead poisoning. And then another seven years to say, oh, actually, we should ban lead paint in particular. And so we would think that this is a win, right? You think, okay, this is great. We've we've passed this lead poisoning prevention act. We've we've banned the use of lead paint for consumers. And in some sense, yes, this is good. We don't want people using lead-based paint. But the delay federal regulations led to continued exposures to lead. Yeah, I was like the fact that this took this many decades. That's a loss to me, but you know, <laughs> Small wins, I guess. And it wasn't really until the 1970s, while we had known that there were health effects associated with lead exposure, it wasn't really until the 1970s that people began to recognize household dust as a mechanism for lead exposure. So people had been thinking about lead paint. They'd been thinking about gas, uh, leaded gas, which you talked about. 
But folks didn't realize that dust, right, as paint chips away, as as furniture rubs up against different leaded paint, that there can be lead dust flying through the air. And in 1971, when the, the Lead Poisoning Prevention Act was passed, the government said, okay, a blood lead level of 60 micrograms per deciliter 60. is safe. Okay, okay, we need 60. to put this in perspective. So iron, which is a mineral our body needs to live, the normal lab values of iron, depending on your age and sex, is between 50 to 175 micrograms per deciliter. And they're proposing that the safe level for lead, a metal that our body doesn't want, is 60 micrograms per deciliter. So do they just say, oh, lead is a metal, iron is a metal, so let's just set the same value for both of them? Well, um, hang on. We can just stick on lead for a second. So then in 1991, the CDC said, well, actually... 10 micrograms per deciliter is an appropriate exposure. A six-fold decrease. <laughs> and then in 2012, they actually were like, oh, well, maybe it's five. Cut it in half again. Five micrograms per deciliter. And now most people recognize that like no blood lead level is safe. Like you can have harmful effects at any level. But we went from 60, 50 years ago, knowing all everything we know about the, the health effects, which we can get into that in a minute down to five, but really like no, no exposure. Mm -hmm. And just to give a magnitude of the problem, just for a moment, in 2020, UNICEF published a study and they estimated worldwide as many as 800 million children have blood lead levels at five micrograms per deciliter or higher. 800 million children across the world have elevated blood lead levels, which can cause some really significant health impacts. Which, which doesn't surprise me because paint is something that everyone uses paint, right? It's very rare do you find a house where there's no paint on the inside or outside right. unless you, you know, find a hut or a cabin. Or like a total brick house. But even then, like you're probably going to have paint on your interior walls because you're not going to have brick interior walls. Yeah. Like you might have like one side of your wall be exposed brick for like artistic purposes, but usually lead is lead paint is or paint, I should say, it's just all over the place. And it doesn't surprise me that there's been this many exposure because it's a ubiquitous product and people were using it. And there was no, I mean, on a wider level, there's no like wide level standards until like the 70s. So of course, lead paint was just everywhere. Now, Scientists may know about it, but like, did the people know about it, or is this this is something that like the, the general public would just be like, oh, whatever, it's just paint. It's a good question. So all of the data on the issues around lead poisoning were publicly available. So there were stories being written about it, and so it's not like people had no idea that there was exposure. And while the U.S. did pass legislation in the 1970s, we were tardy to the party yeah. when it came to banning <laughs> lead paints because even though there were all of these issues like other countries started banning exposure or banning these products like in the late 1800s so germany for example in 1886 said women and children can't work in factories that use lead in 1909 there was a, a actually in 1904 there was a story written where uh, a Frenchman was quoted talking about lead in Sherwin-Williams paint. Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe, I don't know. Well, it's publicly available information. I don't feel like yeah. I'm throwing <laughs> Sherwin-Williams under the bus on that. Anyway, saying that there were, there were harmful effects. And so in 1909, France banned the use of lead paint on any kind of building inside or out. But then it took us until the 1970s to actually ban it 
even though we had the, the voluntary standards, but we, we didn't ban the paint until the 1970s. So the timeline now is we known about lead for centuries and Europe said, yeah, this is probably not a good idea for women and children to be exposed to this. 50 years after that, the United States have voluntary standards and another 20 years after that, the federal government banned lead in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, more than 50 years. So it was the- Yeah, it more was, than 50 you years, know, 1890 yeah. and then 1950, so 60 years. Wow, that's on par for the course for America, but okay, <laughs> continue. So we've predominantly been talking about lead-based paint and we banned the use of lead in paint and in gas, which is great, but we still use lead in other consumer products. So we still use lead. We still produce lead and use lead in this country in some kinds of batteries, in ammunition. So like if you go to the shooting range, you can get lead exposure from handling the ammunition. If, if you're not at an outdoor range and there's poor ventilation, that can be a problem. They use lead in pipes, in solder, in fishing weights. I don't know. Did you grow up doing any fishing, MJ? Uh, I didn't know those were actual lead. So when I was a kid, I would go fishing all the time with my dad. Uh-huh. And I remember we had these little lead weights that we would use. Those were actual lead? Yep. They were soft and- I thought and they were just they were just lead for f- nomenclature purposes. Th- those were actual lead. Nope. They were lead <laughs> weights. Because mm-hmm. lead can be soft and, and malleable. So you can pinch it on and off of your fishing line. Oh my God. Depending on how heavy, how weighted down you want it to be. And I totally remember using our teeth- to pinch closed those weights onto the fishing line because they were hard to get on and off. So, you know, imagine how much smarter I would be had I not repeatedly chewed on lead weights when I was a kid. <laughs> so, I feel like you're already plenty smart already. So Right. I would be like an evil genius if, uh, if I hadn't been exposed to, to lead weights as a kid. Anyway. Oh, my God. I totally touched lead before. <laughs> this is, this is, I thought those were, oh, my God. Those were actual lead. Yeah, lead, lead weights. So, as I mentioned... Is this why I can't find a job? <laughs> uh, no. The, with the amount of fishing I'm, I'm sure you did, I doubt that you uh, had any long-term impacts. No, I went fishing three me. times, so it's fine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're okay. So, as I mentioned, there's recognition now that really no level of blood is safe, that there can be health um, impacts at any level. But what are some of those health impacts? So, when we look at kids... Mm-hmm. health effects can actually be seen at really low levels at sort of less than five micrograms per deciliter, which is the limit right now. Well, it makes sense because they're kids, they're developing. Right, they're, they're developing. And so their health effects include things like reduced IQ scores and increased behavioral problems. And we can circle back to this in a minute. But for adults, at blood lead levels greater than 15 micrograms per deciliter, we see cardiovascular and nerve issues, decreased kidney function, and even reproductive issues. And there was a paper published in Lancet Public Health a couple years ago that estimated more than 400,000 people each year die in the U.S. related to lead exposure. Still. Still. Wow. Yeah, this was just, it was published in 2018. Given that we have a, a lead paint ban, so it, are, these must be from exposures that were there and it, it just continues to be there because it's one thing to ban something, but it's another thing to like go in and actually replace it and fix the issues in their homes. And if you think about exposures as kids and then the harmful effects that has on your development, like just because you remove the lead, that doesn't mean that those harmful developmental issues have gone away. Like those have occurred and then those carry forward. 
And so there has been a big push for lead abatement to sort of remove the the exposures, but it can be super costly, like multiple thousands of dollars to remove lead in a home. Now, there are benefits for their cost benefits, right? There are personal health benefits, there are cost benefits. So some estimates suggest that you can save between 17 and 200 and something dollars for every $1 spent on lead abatement. So this is from those reduced health costs, extended tax earnings because people don't die early, and reductions in crime. This is something that public health thinks about all the time, which is dollars spent today and dollars saved tomorrow. But it's hard to wrap your mind around this concept of like dollars spent today, money saved tomorrow in general, because there's always that drive of like, okay, maybe it won't be me, you know, and there's always that drive of like, oh, but it's it's just so far and so vague, you know, like it might not be me that it's hard for people to think of investment like this as a good thing. Right. And you could tell someone it's going to cost you $8,000 right now to do lead abatement in your home. And if you do it- Immediately, they hear $8,000 and they're like, no, I'm not going to do it. If you do it, you'll save $16,000. You're like, well, you're going to cost me $8,000 right now. And maybe because I'll be healthier, I won't have to spend $16,000, but I have to still have to spend $8,000 right now. Like That can be a hard concept to articulate to people. Yeah. And and I imagine like removing lead from a house is not an easy thing. This is not a case where you just paint it, paint it over, right? You have to there must be like some sort of systematic process that they had to do instead of just like, okay, a new new coat of non-leaded paint. Right. Think of it um if you've ever seen asbestos abatement. Uh no, which is I'm luckily I've never touched that substance in my yeah, life. Yeah, well, so old buildings also have a lot of asbestos in them. Mm-hmm. So if you've ever been walking down the street or sort of been like in your workplace and they've been doing asbestos abatement, it's like a whole big process because Yeah, it's a construction project. Right. Because inhaling even a little bit of asbestos is really harmful. So it's not quite to that same level in terms of lead paint abatement, but it's not like, oh, we're just going to paint over this. Like you have to actually remove the lead paint in some instances. And so it can be a very involved project. And I want to go back on the this whole concept of dust. Like when I was growing up, obviously my parents knew about lead and they would tell me, oh, don't eat the paint on the wall, which is, you know, a <laughs> very simple thing to follow. No, I'm like, just joking. Kids, kids put everything in their mouth. Yeah, but like it made sense to me. I was like, okay, this is paint. This is not food. So I won't put paint in my mouth. But I think it's important to emphasize like how much of lead poisoning is dust-based and not just like paint-based. Like it's not just about you physically eating paint. It's about every time, you know, you scrape against the wall and there's a little bit of dust that flies off or every time, you know, some sort of vibration in the house, it's 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 the dust particles that actually does the majority of poisonings, I've imagined. Yeah, kids play on the floor with their toys. Their toys get dust on them. They touch them, they touch their hands, you know, hands to the face, hands in the mouth, toys in the mouth, whatever it is. Like the dust is a huge, huge issue. So I want to focus in for a minute on the health effects associated between lead exposure and crime. So there have been a few studies documenting what is referred to as a lead crime hypothesis, which really boils down to the idea that kids are exposed to lead at young ages which leads to development of impulse control issues and behavioral issues that can cause them to engage in crime as we get older. So, right, we've been talking a lot about paint. We have mentioned gas, but there were other lead products as well. And so some of this exposure has been concentrated in lower income communities, and that's been associated with increases in crime. If you look at associations between blood lead levels and crime, 
you see significant associations with elevated blood lead levels and firearm violence, robbery, and homicide at the census tract level. Yeah, and this is one of many hypotheses that people have been positing about why is there's a burst of crimes in that in that era. And lead is definitely one thing that makes a lot of sense because it does cause a lot of behavioral issues. So, okay, so we we talked about lead and we talked about the history of lead and how the United States was like very slow to adopting any really strong nationwide measures. But for people today, what would be solutions that they can they can do? So first of all, knowing the age of the house or the apartment or, you know, wherever it is that you live and knowing whether or not you may be at exposure. Now, if you're renting, for example, and it's likely that you may have lead paint or lead paint dust exposure, that is supposed to be disclosed and you have to sign a thing saying, I acknowledge that I may be exposed to lead and I'm not going to eat the paint or, you know, put dust in my mouth, etc. But it's important if you're buying a house that you're aware of the age and that you sort of take precautions in terms of, again, not chipping away paint, those sorts of things, if you're living in an older house. I think another important thing that people can do, which we've talked about probably every episode, is to vote because resources can be made available to help people do lead abatement. But that requires choices by city council, state legislatures, federal governments, et cetera, to make those resources available and sort of to have broad inclusion criteria so that people can reduce these exposures. Yeah. And uh, you don't have to do the late abatement like out of your completely out of your own pocket. Like it is possible that maybe in your city right now or maybe in your city in the future, if enough people voted for it, that the government will step in and provide either some sort of credit or services. I know Baltimore definitely has a lead abatement credit or some sort of voucher that you can sign up for. Um, uh, It's very hard to find, but they do exist. Well, and especially given the fact that federal, state, and local governments were promoting the use of lead-based paint for decades. They do have a responsibility, yeah. Right. It's they are um, responsible to help mitigate some of those harms that were a result of lead-based paint use. Yeah, so this is another example why voting, especially in local elections and on local issues, is so important because these things are almost always determined at the local level. Like your state is unlikely going to step in. The federal government is definitely not going to step in when it comes to like lead abatement. So we spent uh, today talking about lead-based paint. We did mention some other lead exposures, but... This is just a great example of how the built environment, the places where we live, work, play, pray, worship, all of those things can impact our health. We are exposed to things around us all the time, and it's just it's an important concept in public health that we really need to focus on the built environment. It's hard to wrap your mind around around that the scale of this because when we talk about the built environment, we're talking about the things that occur around us. And these are things that are built, meaning that we made them, right? These are not natural things. Imagine if the United States were on Europe's pace in banning lead paint. If we could even like fathom how many houses were built between like 1900 and 1950 or 1970. If we were to adopt lead paint banned in the early 1900, so many houses, we're talking about possibly multi-million, no, for sure, multi-million number of houses would have been built without lead paint. Absolutely. And and this is just something that because it's a built environment, because we are responsible with building it, 
any action that's taken on that level can have so much impact down the line. Like we have to do so much lead abatement now and we have to do so much, you know, lead repairs or lead, you know, education now because the United States for almost 70 years did not ban lead paint. And we're living we're living in the future that. And absolutely. And the federal government was promoting the use of lead-based paint. And if you think about... Yes, they weren't even... They were promoting Right. It. If you think about the role the federal government had in building housing, whether it was providing funding for the development of housing or planning housing developments for soldiers in particular returning from World War II. Like my, my cousins in Pennsylvania live in a little housing development that was built specifically for people returning from the war. It was built in the 1940s. I am certain that because of the promotion of lead-based paint by the federal government, they probably were built using lead-based paint. So this is an entire neighborhood that people were moving into where the kids were then exposed to lead paint dust, etc. So, you know, it was a bunch of actions, not just inaction, but a bunch of actions taken by the federal government that expanded our exposure to lead-based paint. And this is a big theme in public health that we're definitely going to talk about over and over again, which is our built environment. And there's so many things that we can take, so many actions that we can take in our built environment that could prevent a lot of things should we, you know, think that far ahead. But as we know, sometimes we don't think that far ahead. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more and more people can learn about public health. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Also reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at everythingisph. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krafasi. Please also give us a rating and review on wherever you listen to podcasts. It does help us immensely. Don't forget to like, share, and comment as well. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page, and you can find the link for that in the description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.